Now today, friends, we come to the sixth chapter of Second Kings, and in this we have two of the most exciting experiences that any man ever had. We've seen this man, Elisha, is outstanding. He's different from Elijah. After all, Elijah was an extrovert. Elisha's an introvert. Elijah's ministry was public. Look at him on Mount Carmel. And Elisha's ministry was private. The way we saw last time he dealt with Naaman, the captain of the Syrian host. This man, Elijah, was spectacular, fire and rain. But this man, Elisha, he's a silent individual. We'll see here at Dothan and a mountain filled with horses and chariots. Elijah ministered to princes, and this man, Elisha, ministered to common people, as we're going to see right now. And we find that the two men are different in many, many ways. Elijah didn't die. Elisha did. May I say that I think both of them represent the two aspects of the rapture, the living or to be caught up and those that have died are to be raised from the dead. Now, will you notice that it's not the contrast we're interested in here today, but to see the popularity of this man, Elisha. And I begin reading at chapter 6, verse 1. And the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Now, this reveals, by the way, the great popularity of Elisha. He taught in a theological seminary, the school of the prophets. The school grew. It needed larger quarters, and it was due to the presence and popularity of Elisha. He was a great teacher, you see. And the strength, actually, and value of any school is the character and the ability of the faculty. It hasn't anything to do with buildings. Today, we put the emphasis on buildings. And, of course, in Southern California, we build them and then they burn them down. And then they want to tax us some more. But the value is in the teachers. And it's not the methods, but the man. It's not larger buildings, but bigger man. It's not endowments, but endowments of spiritual strength. It's not the stuff, but the staff. It's not money, but the moral condition. Someone said that a college was a law with John Hopkins on one end and a student on the other end. And the schools, I think, in America are not suffering from a housing shortage. They're suffering from a character shortage. And you look at the faculty that gets on TV today and their protest movements, and when I see them, I say, God pity the youth of America today. It's not more pay they need. They need more spiritual power. Now, will you notice verse 2? It says, Let us go, we pray thee, into Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make a place there where we may dwell. And he answered, Go ye. By the way, this reveals that there was a great deal of timber along the Jordan Valley. That land was timbered in that day. They wanted to go down, cut down the timber, and build a school down there. They'd have a good campus in that particular place, by the way. And this is just a personal touch, I think, now that we're coming to here. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. 
And he answered, I'll go. What a personal touch. Here is a professor that was really popular because he taught the Word of God. Do students ordinarily want to take their teacher with them beyond the boundary of the campus? They say, no, he's either a square or he's queer or he's a brain. And any one of these would disqualify him. But Elisha, they wanted to go with them. What a testimony. And Elisha went with them. So he went with them. And when they came to Jordan, they cut down wood. They got busy, you see. They went to work. Now, here's a student body that wasn't afraid to work, and neither were the professors. This is unusual, I must confess. Now, we have in verse 5, But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Now, that seems like a small tragedy, does it not? It's sort of much ado about nothing. It's a tempest in a teapot. And you want to know how ridiculous it is? There stands that little fella, one of the students looking down in the muddy Jordan for the axe that went off the handle. I suppose he could sing on Jordan's stormy banks. I stand and cast a wistful eye looking for my axe. Well, you know, this reveals something. How different this was from this man Elijah. The very interesting thing is that this fellow here would have been passed by Elijah. I think Elijah would have said to him, forget it. That's too little for us to fool with. But, you know, God is concerned about the small events in our lives. We're told to pray about everything. Everything means little things, too. As someone asked the late J. Camel Morgan years ago, do you think we ought to pray about the little things in our lives? And he said, Madam, can you mention anything in your life that's big to God? Well, it's all little stuff to him. But he's interested in what we call little stuff. You see, you remember when the Lord Jesus was here? The tramp and tumult of the crowd didn't drown out the cry of blind Bartimaeus. And in the crowd there on another occasion, a frail and feeble woman in the crowd touched. And he said, Who touched me? He was interested. And the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 6, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. But actually, this is not so small. In this day of gadgets today, it seems very small to us, because you could have gone down to the hardware store or one of the discount stores, and you could have replaced this very easily. But in that day... They didn't have very many axe heads, by the way. And we're told, you remember back in the days of Saul and Jonathan, it is said in 1 Samuel 13, 22, So it came to pass in the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people that were with Saul and Jonathan. May I say to you, there was a shortage of weapons there. And you may be sure there are not many axes around. And this fellow, the axe came off here, and he says it's borrowed. Now, most commentators have expelled this young theological student from seminary. He's a dropout. They give him two demerits. They say that this is carelessness. And then they say it was borrowed, and he shouldn't have borrowed it. Man, I heard a man gave quite a lecture on the fact he shouldn't have borrowed it. Well, if he were guilty, why didn't Elisha, his teacher, discipline him? 
And Elisha, I think, absolved him of all the charges that were made against. Now, will you notice what happened here? This is a very interesting thing, and I'll move right through this. And the man of God, notice this, said, Where fell it? And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick, cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Now, first of all, let me say he was not careless, actually careful. You see, there was a danger of an axe head coming off. It was a dangerous weapon. And there were other students present. God had given a rule that you're to be careful about the use of that. Read Deuteronomy 19.5. This fellow had exercised utmost precaution. He aimed the axe head toward the river. He didn't aim it toward a student. That's the reason when it came off, it went into the river. A traffic officer stopped a lady that ran into another car in downtown Los Angeles and said to her, Lady, you are to drive that, not aim it. Well, this theological student aimed it in the right direction, by the way. And then let's look at that matter. It was borrowed. Well, he's a poor seminary student. He couldn't afford an axe. It was sort of like owning a Cadillac convertible. And I happen to know, having been a theological student, that the old clunk that I own, it barely made it out off the campus and got back in the evening. You see, those of us who handle God's property, not ours, after all, whatever we've got, Paul said, what have you that you didn't receive? And we're stewards of the manifold grace of God. I hear people say, can we borrow something that belongs to the church? Well, after all, this boy here was just a poor preacher, and he probably had a neighbor that lent him to him. Now, I'd like to ask a question. I'd like to know who lent this student an old axe that was a dangerous weapon, head that was apt to come off. May I say to you, I think it was a fellow in that day who today is the same fellow who thinks that if he sends his old clothing to the mission and his old Christmas cards to the missionary, he's giving God a very valuable offering. We criticize the church, and we criticize missionaries for wanting this thing and that thing. Well, this student was distressed, and he borrowed it. And this man shouldn't have given him an old axe. I bet he kept his new axe at home. He couldn't reimburse the man, and he's not a skin diver, and he couldn't dredge the river. So Elisha says, where did it fall? Now, somebody says, why did he ask that question? If he's a prophet of God, he should know. I think Elisha knew, and he knew something else, too. He knew the Holy Spirit needed to make a lesson. And you accuse that student of carelessness? Why, my friend, if he'd been careless, he wouldn't have known where it fell. The student could point right to the spot. He showed him the place. He could point right to it. Somebody says, well, we'll explain this miracle away. He saw the axe head in the water. Well, if you say that, you haven't seen the Jordan River. It's muddy. And somebody says he's just lucky. Well, if you say that, you're rather naive, aren't you? This is a miracle. The iron did swim, we're told here. The iron did swim. And that's contrary to all known physical laws. Since the day of John Randolph in 1834, who launched ships of iron and steel, 
have floated on the seven seas, and it's no miracle. But, my friend, it was a miracle for an axe head on the bottom of the Jordan River to float to the top like a cork. Oh, I grant it's not startling or sensational. It won't compare to the translation of Elijah when he stepped into a chariot of fire and sailed into space. I submit to you the miracle of the floating axe head is greater than taking off in a chariot. An axe head dormant on the bottom of the muddy Jordan. It's raised, resurrected, restored to the owner, replaced on the handle, made useful, utilitarian, and functional, if you please. My friend, there's a marvelous lesson here. Man is like that axe head. At the fall, we became totally depraved, went down into the waters of death and defeat, lost to God, no longer enjoy life and be useful and purposeful in our existence, far from God. And we try to find something to do. Occupies time down here. And a little man travels. He paints pictures. He flies. He swims. He wars. He drinks. He takes drugs. He tries to drown out the futility of life and fill the vacuum with many things. Nothing satisfies Unrest like a million rats, gnawing at his soul. And God cut down a stick. He cast it into the waters of death. That stick is the cross of Christ. And Christ came out of the waters of death, who his own self by our sins and his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins might live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed." Man can rise from the waters of death and judgment through Christ, placed back in the handle of God's plan and purpose, geared to God's program, and he can say, I can do all things in Christ who strengtheneth me. No longer live an aimless and useless life and a meaningless existence. Now he has a new direction, and he can be brought close to God. The greatest miracle, friends, not to go to the moon, The greatest miracle is to be lifted out of the mire of sin and given a meaning to life today. This is a tremendous thing, you see. Now, Ben-Hadad came to the conclusion there must be a spy in his camp. He tried to find out. He discovered it wasn't a spy in his camp. It was Elisha down in Israel that was calling the shots. And so he sent a whole army down to get him. And believe me, friends, that was certainly a compliment to this man that he had to have an old army to come against him. Verse 13, he said, "'Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him.' And it was told him, saying, "'Behold, he's in Dothan. Therefore sent he thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early,' And gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? This servant of Elisha went out and saw that they were surrounded by the enemy. And he says, What in the world can we do? And this is what Elisha said. He answered, Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. You and I are living in a day when Christians are in the minority. We've heard a great deal about minority groups, but the minority group today are believers. I don't mean church members. 
I mean real Bible believers. We are a real minority. And sometimes we develop an Elijah complex. What we need is an Elisha complex and find out, as Martin Luther put it, one with God is a majority. And so Elisha prayed, here's verse 17, and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, a mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. And he found out that he was protected. Now, let's understand one thing. At Dothan, Joseph had no chariots of fire that protected him. His brothers took him, and he would have been murdered. But they sold him into slavery into Egypt. But regardless of whether there's chariots of fire around you today or whether there's coming into your life trouble, the trouble can never come to you unless it gets through those chariots of fire. God won't let it come to you. You remember in the book of Job, Satan had to say concerning him, you put a hedge around him. My friend, today, God is on your side, but somebody says, I'm in trouble. If you're God's man, he's permitted it. Now, why? I don't know. Don't ask me that. But he's permitted it to come to you for a very definite purpose. 